This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Diversity is about how we think what we do, and just because it's not how you would do it, as long as it's not illegal, immoral, it's just different, I think we need to cultivate that difference and and really move things forward on where we're at today. That's the thing I would change is really the mindset. That's what I believe diversity should be like where we're at today. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. U.S. Air Force Colonel Janice Carroll always thought she'd be a Fortune 500 businesswoman who would travel the world. In this episode of our Women in the Military series, Colonel Carroll explains how she ended up the commander of the 75th Air Base Wing at Hill Air Force Base in Utah. We also talked about her innovative work with community leadership near the base to provide affordable housing for military families. In addition, we discussed her work on diversity and inclusion. Colonel Janice Carroll, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you for having me. I am excited to be here with you today. Well, I am thrilled to get to talk to you. We've been doing this series following women in the military and having conversations with them about their careers and their interests and passions. And for our audience, Colonel Carroll is the commander of the 75th Air Base Wing at Hill Air Force Base in Utah. And my first question, what led you to join the Air Force? Because I read a story about you that said your intention was to be a Fortune 500 businesswoman and travel the world. I'm sure the Air Force has let you travel the world, but it's not a Fortune 500 business. Well, yes, thank you for that question. So honestly, when I decided to join, what made me or kind of convinced me, if you will, to join the military? I'm a native of Texas, Houston, Texas, to be exact. And as I graduated from high school, I was young, too young, really, to to go away to college, or at least my mother thought I was. I was 17, and she was not willing to let me leave and go to college. And so what I did is I went to University of Houston for a little while, and then I did not like staying at home, going to school. And so I opted to stop going to college and work for a while until I was able to join the military. And uh, when I joined the military, my whole goal was to get my degree, get out, and then go ahead and pursue my first dream. And that was to become an executive businesswoman and travel the world. So um, albeit I did get my degree in a short period of time and two and a half years, if you will, in the military, but I continue to serve. And in some sense, a lot of people would say what you're doing now, you are definitely an executive running a company larger than many of the companies that you could name that you might have wanted to work for as a 17-year-old. I mean, you have 29,000 people on the base there in Utah. No, you're absolutely right. So, you know, we always say, one, one of my favorite poems is Robert, Robert Frost, The Road Less Taken, right? And so as I sit back and reflect Yes, I am running a enormous organization. Hill Air Force Base is the second largest base in the Air Force. And right now, barely under 29,000 personnel with 50 
plus associate units as mission partners on the installation. So I am essentially doing that job right now that I set out to do as a young 17-year-old, but I did not have that vision back then. In the same article I read about you, you talked about the great leaders that helped you reach your, your full potential. Talk about them and what advice they gave you. And one thing I really want you to talk about is you said in the article that you didn't think about being a, a wing commander because you'd never seen a woman be a wing commander. But there was someone who was advising you who said, you can do it. And talk about the importance of, of perhaps doing something when you haven't exactly seen someone who's like you do it before. Wow, what a, what a great question. So to go back to that leader that inspired me, and in that same article, perhaps you read, there was many individuals that really kind of, if you will, said there's nothing you can't do. But you don't know that until A, someone kind of gives you that, that extra courage, if you will, because it truly is about courage. And uh, not seeing a woman in a leadership role, you often wonder, hey, is it possible? Or you also wonder, why why are there not any women in those leadership roles? And um Again, going about my business, being in the military, each and every job that I held, I always did my very best because that's what you're told. You do this job and you keep going, you get recognized. And that is a true statement. You get recognized and pulled up for many jobs. And while sitting as a young lieutenant colonel, I recall his name was Dr. Todd Four, a great mentor of mine still today. He talked about my career and what I wanted to do. And I looked at him and I said, but why, why do I want to be a wing commander? I don't know that I do, because when I look out, I don't see anyone that looks like me serving in that role. And uh, so really, it wasn't a part of what I had set out to do. Honestly, again, I go back to say I came in the Air Force to get my degree, and essentially I was getting out. And I was inspired to get a commission, and that's why I'm here today. But when we had that conversation, I stepped back and said, why not me? Because when you look across the spectrum of women in leadership positions, we, we are not where we should be in relationship to how many of us graduate from college. More of us graduate from college today than ever before, but we're still lagging behind or lagging, if you will, in those executive roles, including those in the military. And so it's all about having the courage to go forth and put yourself out there and understanding that you're going to have to maneuver the space differently than your male counterparts. I want to pull this thread just a, a little bit because you talked about how there aren't enough women in these roles for other women to see them twofold. Is it always important to be able to see someone in a job before you believe you can do it? Or is it just as important to you know have the imagination? I haven't seen anyone who looks like me do this job, but I'm pretty confident I can do it. And then retention of women in the military is an issue that's been a recurring issue that's been brought up in this series. So what does the military and the Air Force specifically in your case need to do to make sure that it is not only recruiting, but retaining women such as yourself who are top level leaders? Wow. Let me try to unpack that question. So first you talk about uh, the importance of seeing someone that looks like you. It's not always important to see someone, but it does give you the element of hope. When a woman or a kid looks out there and they see someone that they can actually connect with, that gives a young child hope. And hope makes all the difference in the world. And we know that in the current state of the world that we live in today. So that's the first data point about seeing someone that looks like you. Not seeing someone that looks like you, yes, it's about the dream. 
So you have hope when you see someone that does look like you are a woman for that matter, if we're talking about, you know, smart women, smart power. But if you don't, then you dream of being that first, whatever, whatever terminology you want to put behind it, the first astronaut, the first wing commander, the first female president, whatever that first is. But now that becomes the dream. And once we as women accomplish that dream, and then it gives the next generation the hope because we have attained that level. And so me being in this role as one of few women and very few African-American women serving as a wing commander, I, I instill that it gives hope for those in the next generation that elect to serve and elect to stay in our, in our military, specifically in the Air Force. And then the question about recruiting and retaining women in the military. So I will tell you, recruiting, retaining, retention, all those three R's, if you will, that has been a challenge of our militaries for a while. And uh, as you said, it's a continuous, it continues to to ebb and flow. What I offer is when, when we are recruiting, we can recruit a certain level. And so let's just use 100 as a data point. We recruit 100 women to come in to serve, whether it's an officer and enlisted and, and civilians for that matter, because we do have civilians in our in our Department of Defense. When we recruit that 100 and we, we give them a certain job, a certain experience level, how do we retain them? We retain them if we truly develop them. So now I have you, and I'll just say Janice Carroll, for instance. Janice, we hired you. You're now a part of the family. How are we going to cultivate that talent time and time again to A, let you know you're important, and B, to help develop that skill and fine-tune that skill? And and, and I, that is what I believe we have the biggest issue with. We recruit, but we don't retain. And we don't retain because when you look around, women still make up the minority of those serving. And so the connective tissue of when you have a male supervisor that can't quite relate to women issues, I believe caused some women to leave, not all. But the other thing from my experience that I know is still an issue, and actually there's a latest article out about this issue, is it's, a, it's really those invisible barriers, whether it's unconscious bias, gender stereotype, racism, discrimination, it is there. And it may not be as blatant as it was back for our ancestors or our parents, but it still exists today. And the Air Force truly is trying to get after it. But I will tell you, all the studies and and research is causing, still causing women to, to exit the military because they're tired of the studies. We're ready for action. And that's what we're looking forward to. What are we going to do to change it today? Not tomorrow, but today. And you talk about this. You say we need to do, not talk. Yes, do not talk. Can you expound on on what you mean and what is it that needs to be done rather than just talking? Can you can you flesh that out a little bit? Let's go back and I'll just use a, a great example that I actually witnessed happen. And it's not a great topic, but it, it does give a data point of how things change swiftly when the need was actually at a pivotal point in history. It was back in the early 2000s and it was on the cusp of all things sexual assault, sexual harassment that had really sparked the attention of Senator Hutchins and Senator Cornyn. It was from a um, one of our tech training bases, if you will, at Shepard Air Force Base. And there was things that just came out in the news, also the Air Force Academy. And um, it was like, we really need to do something. I remember how we handled that. And I was a young officer back then. And so it, at the time, it was General Don Cook 
He was the Air Education and Training Command commander and uh, the person that was put in charge of this task force to look into this issue was Major General Casey McClain, now retired. Both are retired. But what happened was there was a task force and a group of individuals put together and went out and had one-on-one -on -one interviews with the students, male and female students that were involved or that kind of said, hey, we need help out here. It was no longer just the surveys. It was actually, let's go out and, and have conversations and report the data directly back to the source. I, I think the change we're looking for is we continue to do surveys. Again, I applaud, I applaud the leadership to say, okay, let's do another survey. But surveys now get placed into a gunculator and someone else is basically combing through the data. And you and I know we can shape data however we want to shape data based on the regression analysis and based on based on the story we're trying to tell. It's of my opinion that right now today, if we were to say, let's go out and have those uncomfortable conversations one-on-one -on -one and get to the crux of how to make things happen, you could change the tide today. And I don't know that we're ready to do that, but we should do that. And that's Janice Carroll's opinion on how we can truly get in front of this rolling ball that continues to roll. And I can give you additional data points on how we got here today, but it took some courage of whether it's congressional mandates or great leaders that served in uniform to make those things happen. What are some of the uncomfortable conversations? Because in the course of doing this series, the issue of uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault has, has come up repeatedly in terms of making it more difficult to either get women to join the military or to get them to stay in the military. I often get phone calls and people get on my calendar, airmen get on my calendar to have conversations about how they're being treated and how they try to elevate what's happening to them, to their leadership. And more times than not, their leadership don't quite understand because the leadership happens to be a man or their leader happens to be another ethnicity. And so what happens is through my lens as a woman, I believe that I'm being treated a certain way. But when I go and have a conversation about that, it's then discounted. I am too sensitive. And so that is what I believe where we're at today in the military because, or really in the Department of Defense, when women speak up, they're silenced and they're not heard. And so once you do that once or twice, it is women decide just to leave. Now, is that the right thing to do? I would say no, but when they don't feel like they have a voice, what else can they do? That's a great point. You also pulled the thread on diversity. So I wanna follow up on, on that question. What is the Air Force doing to increase diversity? So what I will tell you is there are numerous videos out there, recruiting videos out there to try to get after diversity. But before we go just to recruiting, I offer, why don't we do a baseline of who we have serving at certain ranks today? And of those serving, say for instance, we have our CGOs, our field grade officers and our senior officers, and they are broken out into certain groupings based on the rank. So from lieutenant to captain is a CGO, Major, Lieutenant, Colonel, your FGO and Colonel and above really is your senior officer. If you were to take a snapshot in time right now today on those currently serving and say, okay, let's just go to, let's go to our field grade officers and have a conversation with them and ask them 
how they are treated for opportunities, you will find that a lot of them say they did not know about opportunities. And so if you don't know about an opportunity, you can't take advantage of an opportunity. Or the other thing we hear is, I wish I would have known so I could have applied for that. So I think it's about that word we hear now called advocacy. So it's of my it's of my opinion, and I've seen it, I've witnessed it, that women don't have the same level of advocacy as their male counterparts. It, and then you break that down even further. Your minorities do not have the same level of advocacy as your colleagues that are of the majority. How do you fix that? Wow. Well, I tell you, one thing you do, definitely, you have to have courage to speak up. But oftentimes when you speak up and you highlight that it's something that um, you, you observe, some people think that the person is now self-serving, but they're really just speaking their truth because they have witnessed it. And um, I often say we have this thing called unconscious bias, but there's a real thing called conscious bias. Individuals know exactly what they're doing and how they're doing it. And until someone is able to break through that, uh, we often hear the term, as you well know, glass ceiling. The glass ceiling is still there, but the glass ceiling continues to permeate across the spectrum when women are not afforded the opportunities and women truly do not have the same level of advocacy as their male counterparts. When you look across the Department of Defense, I believe today the number probably is something in the, for women, as far as, I'll just go to one star, one stars, that's the next rank up from a colonel. I think we may have roughly about 32 that are one-star generals today. And of the 32 females, and I'm only speaking of active duty because I'm an active, active officer, active duty, we have only one woman of color and all the others are Caucasian. So you have to say, okay, we have women, but then what happened to the ethnicity of those women? And so it gets me back to the advocacy is just not there. And I've actually been a part of not being advocated for in my career. Let me ask you about another question concerning advocacy, because you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation that it was a man who encouraged you to take the path that led to you being a wing commander. Talk about the need for male allies to advocate for women and the importance of that, because I think sometimes in the conversations when we're talking about barriers to women, men may feel left out of that conversation, but it's important to bring them in the conversation and tell them what kind of role they can have to affect positive change. Absolutely, so you're right. Men absolutely have to be a part of the conversation because again, they are the majority majority of decision makers in the room. They're the ones that are making decisions. But I think if we step back for a minute, it's also important that men understand the dynamic. And sometimes men don't understand what's going on. Men don't realize that women are being shut out of opportunities until it, it happens to someone, potentially a friend, a mentee, or sometimes their own daughter or sister. And what do I mean by that? You're having a conversation, I'm having a conversation with a colleague recently, and I'm talking about things that are happening to me, for instance. Did you realize this was going on? I gave just an analogy of something that was happening, and he stepped back and said, oh, I didn't know that. The reason they don't know it is because they're on, they're on autopilot. They're, they're focusing on what's important, and that's their job, their mission, and many times don't realize that these issues over here that are going on in the space of women in leadership is lacking those male allies. 
And so it's very important to have male allies in the space of women in leadership, but not all men feel comfortable pulling up women or recognizing the talent in women. Not all men feel confident doing that. And so that's probably one of those difficult conversations that you were referring to that actually needs to happen. Absolutely. And it's a difficult conversation and it's, 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 it's about women in leadership and then it becomes about ethnicity of those women because not no two women are the same, even from the same background. But what I will offer is we all have different levels of experiences which shape our emotional intelligence. And when things happen to us, we then go back and assess why that happened to us as a woman and then go forward. Some of us do it and some of us don't because some of us lack the courage and the strength to keep pushing forward. Let me ask you, Colonel Carroll, are there anything or if there's one thing that you could change, what would that be? Wow, that, that's really a big question. But one thing I would change for starters is when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility, we often think about how we look, right? That's the first thing. But, but the other thing is about the actions that we take. And so when we think of diversity and we're in a room and I'll use myself as an example, a woman makes a decision that is slightly different than what her male counterpart would make, that doesn't make it wrong. It makes it different. That's the element of diversity and acceptability that I believe we need to get to today in our military and really in our country. Diversity is about how we think, what we do, and just because it's not how you would do it, as long as it's not illegal, immoral, it's just different, I think we need to cultivate that difference and and really move things forward on where we're at today. That's the thing I would change is really the mindset. That's what I believe diversity should be like where we're at today, if that makes sense. It makes total sense, and it's sound advice. <laughs> so yeah, cultivate cultivate that diversity. You know, we talk about change and status quo. Change comes about when people have a different idea and when people see things from a different lens. We all are different, and I look at things from a different lens based on where I've come from, based on being a woman, based on being one of very few women in this role. And, and I would, you know, I often have, I have a great team. They get behind me. It may not be what you would do, but it's what I will do to lead us to where we need to go. So that's the thing. Again, it's all about understanding that we all have a different way of looking at something. Let's just move out and cultivate that difference across the spectrum. Well, I want to shift the conversation just a bit because I know that you've talked about working to make uh, the people who live on base, work on base, a part of the greater community there in, in Utah. And I want to ask you about your efforts to work with the community leaders there to make sure that people who serve have affordable housing and, have, and can have a comfortable life there in the community where the base is. Can you talk about that? I absolutely can talk about that. So I will tell you, Hill Air Force Base is amazing and the surrounding community truly makes the base uh, a great a great place to be, a great place to live. Hill Air Force Base, our economic impact to the area is about, last year was about $4.6 billion, which is huge. And uh, you can imagine we only have a small amount of housing on the installation. And so... Because of where Hill Air Force Base is located, we have so many mayors that are that are around the installation. 
and they're always looking at how they can help. And so some of them have really looked at creating a space of affordable housing because with, with the Utah economy being so powerful, it is actually, last time I checked, it was the second economy with the lowest unemployment rate in the nation, and that's behind that of Nebraska. So when a person comes here to find a house, it is truly a challenge. So they're looking at how to create spaces, build homes where it does not cost an airman more than their BAH because the BAH rate is what we receive and um, the housing market here, you're paying out of pocket if you live off the installation, which does not does certainly does not help when it comes to retaining our airmen for the future. So the governors, the governor, uh, Governor Cox, as well as the mayors in Utah are really working to help us with this issue with affordable housing. And how important is it for someone like you in a leadership position in an installation like Hill Air Force Base to actually reach out and work with community leaders to make something like this happen for the people that are under your command? You know, it's extremely important. And and what I would offer is, it's not so much as me reaching out, it's them reaching in, right? So arriving on the installation, taking command, the community always says, hey, we're glad you're here, we're ready to help. But I think sometimes when asked how can they help, if we do nothing, then it stays the same. And so one of the things I highlighted to them early on was we are busting at the seams with our on-base housing. Our, our occupancy rate stays at about 99%. And that, that tells you that the numbers, you know, living on base is, is where everyone would like to be. And because I live on the installation, I don't actually... Uh, go through all the things as someone that lives off the installation. So it's very important to tell them how they can help. And again, as I said, it's the mayors, it's the governor, and it's also, it's called the Top of Military Affairs Committee. We call it TUMAC. Very, very involved. And our Utah Defense Alliance, who is truly the voice that carries the mail for us up to the Pentagon. And this is pretty innovative, or at least it's it, to my ears, it sounds pretty innovative. I also wanted to ask as we begin to wrap up the conversation about you are actively encouraging innovation and modernization for the airports. Can you tell our listeners some of the things that you're doing in this area? So probably the coolest thing that I have a big passion about is about our overall wellness, right? How do we function daily? Uh, what What gives us our you, you know, when we get up in the morning, what gives us that next level of, hey, I can do this. So here at Hill Air Force Base, probably about 200 plus, we're testing this wearable device and it's called the Aura Ring and the Garmin Watch. And we wear those two devices together. And when I tell you it has revolutionized how you sleep, eat, work out, and we're doing this test as part of uh, the Air Force Research Lab. And um, the results will kind of go up and we look at how does your day-to-day -day activity, the stress of your job, your sleep, and all those patterns that we kind of read about or we see in the artificial intelligence world, we're actually doing some of that here uh, just on our day-to-day -day airmen, getting them to say, hey, do you want to be a part of this study? And so far, this level of innovation has already changed how some of our youngest airmen that are in their early 20s have changed their habits from sleeping, from eating, all types of things based off the score that you get daily of your readiness. It gives you a readiness score of what you can do. It also tells you when to take it easy. 
it can also detect if there's an illness that is an onset that is coming based off you wearing these two devices together. Is this something that's only being done at Hill or is this something that's being done at other installations across the Air Force? It sounds fascinating. So Hill, Hill Air Force Base, um, one of my squadron commanders, she's amazing. She, she came up with the, with the vision and asked for support and absolutely supported her. So we're doing it on a large scale here at Hill, but some of our senior leaders are also doing it in the Air Force. I don't know how many other bases, but I do know it's a small group and each group is testing different aspects of, of the technology to truly see how we can take that technology and, and then launch it forward for the future. I know there's been a lot of talk about the use of AI and how it can really help the military as a whole modernize, but this seems like something that across the services would be really fascinating to, to do this kind of test and, and track you know, the, the, the way to help people get healthier and recognize patterns and, and be on the preventative side of illness. I, I mean, I would think that that could re incredible benefits, not just for people personally, but for the services as a whole. No, you're absolutely right. So it's really about encouraging, right? It's about encouraging us to, to change our routine and our habits, because you know, once you really start seeing the benefits of how it's helping you and you like how you feel, that drives change because it is about change, changing what you did yesterday if it's going to make things better for tomorrow, which to me is really what we need to do, not just as a, not just as a person, but as a nation and as a military. Colonel Carroll, I could talk to you all day. This has been a wonderful conversation and I'm so grateful that you joined us here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Hey, Smart Women, Smart Power listeners. My name is Caitlin Johnson, and I host a podcast called Tech Unmanned, where we elevate women's voices in the intersection of emerging technologies and national security policy. We talk about things like artificial intelligence, quantum, biotechnology, and space. Check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts or at csis.org slash tech unmanned.